0: Welcome to an off-the-beat dance podcast with Amea and Kiran.
1: I'm Amea King. I'm a
2: kuchipudi dancer, dance educator, and writer based in Richmond, Virginia.
0: I'm Kiran Ajagopalan, and I'm a New Jersey-based dancer, choreographer, educator, and writer. This is a two-part episode about a very complex topic. Rasa. What exactly is Rasa, and is it relevant to our practice and performance of dance?
1: When I went to college, as much as
2: I liked the cafeteria food, every now and then I would get a craving for comfort food, which is, for me, freshly made rice, either scrambled eggs or fried potatoes. Scrambled eggs? What? (laughs) Yes! egg bolt. it's a thing. And charu, which is what we Andhra people call rasam.
0: Wait, so rasam and scrambled eggs? Mm
2: -hmm. What? Alright, next time you're coming over, I'm making this, that'll be the food. (laughs) And then we'll talk. Yes.
0: Okay. I'm Um, pretty open-minded, so I'll try it, but we'll see if I like it. (laughs)
2: Well, it'll be good. And I say that because I have spent years and years perfecting my rasam. I would call my mom asking for the recipe. The reason for this is my mom, she doesn't believe in measuring. And she wouldn't let me in the kitchen when I was younger. So I didn't get to watch her make charu that much. All I knew was the smell of how it should be. So I would try, and I would call her, and every time she'd give me a slightly different list of ingredients, never any measurements, never any timings. And it was, you throw them all in a pot of water, you simmer it for a while, and then you do the tempering, and then it's done. That's it, it's really easy. But I figured if I called her enough number of times, I'd get the complete set of ingredients. And I would keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. Fast forward to about five years later, my parents were visiting me and my husband. We were living in Pittsburgh at that time. And that particular weekend, probably because they were visiting, there was a snowstorm. So I knew they were coming after a long drive with treacherous weather. So I made a proper home-cooked meal with papu, simple vegetable curry, and charu. And my mom was a little bit suspicious and she was like, oh, we stopped at the place we already ate. And I said, that's okay. If you don't want to eat it, I guess I'll save you. She's like, no, 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 I'll have a little bit. And she tried it. And I could see her face sort of change at the taste of something that's not Subway. And she said, this is actually really good. Charu is hard to get right. Of course, my immediate response was indignation. Ma, you said it was easy all this time when I was struggling. The reason I tell the story is not just to brag about how well I cook, even though I am a pretty good cook, even with scrambled eggs and charu.
0: She is, trust me.
2: (laughs) Appreciate that. But this kind of ties into a couple of different things. One is the experience of developing a recipe. is not that different from the experience of developing an item. And I don't mean that as in choreography. I mean that as in being able to perform it and embody it. And also because Bharata in the Natyashastra, in his chapter about rasa, explicitly compares it to the flavors in food.
0: Which I think is great because it's a flavor, right? It's an amalgamation of so many different things that give rise to what we know as taste or rasa, right? So when we were talking about rasa, charu, we talked about the idea of sometimes there are no rules but there are rules when you're making such dishes or when you're making pieces. There's sort of conventions, archetypes that are there in existence, but they're not the end all to be all kind of thing. And so this talk about rasam reminds me of when I was a kid and I also created my own special recipe in kindergarten. So I have an idea. Why don't I exchange my beautiful, brilliant kindergarten recipe of sotam? for your amazing recipe for rasam, so that I can actually learn how to make it properly.
2: You know, I think it's a journey you also have to go on.
0: So speaking of journeys, I wanted to talk a little bit more about my childhood experience with Rasa and turn the conversation away from food for just a second, but to actual dance. I remember when I was 11 years old, I had to play the role of Shankaracharya, who was a really prominent and really well-known Hindu philosopher and there was a circumstance that he finds himself in which was quite baffling and complex to depict. And the scenario is that he sends a hunter off on a quest which Shankaracharya thinks is a fool's journey, but through devotion and through perseverance the hunter triumphed in capturing the elusive Narasimha. That's the form of Lord Vishnu as a half lion and half man. And He captures Narasimha and brings him back to his village. Shankaracharya also comes back to the village and there's a gathering of villagers who are supposedly simple people, in quotation marks, but they're able to perceive Narasimha in all of his glory as Lord Vishnu's avatar. But Shankaracharya, who had been the one who had sent the hunter on this journey, cannot see Narasimha. And so... I had a hard time trying to understand how to depict Shankaracharya coming to this very, very complex realization about the idea of formally being educated and being enlightened versus somebody who was not formally educated but still experiences enlightenment. How does an 11-year-old from the U.S. understand these kinds of things? And my mother tried her very, very best to try and contextualize it for me in a way that I could understand. And so she had told me, imagine yourself in this scenario. You are at school and Michael Jordan makes a visit and comes and meets all of the students at your school. Everybody's invited except for you. Everybody can see and meet and touch and interact with Michael Jordan. But you, how would you feel? So even with that kind of attempt at trying to simplify a really, really difficult emotional state to convey on stage, you rely a lot upon experience in terms of trying to develop the rasa that an audience member experiences of your performance. And a lot of it is culled from life experience, from your understanding of culture, cultural context, and all of that goes into establishing rasa and of course there's many other things that go into rasa as we'll discuss as we go further along into today's episode and our episode that is coming up
2: what i like about that story is a couple of things one is obviously your personal experience on how to develop your presentation of shankaracharya the second thing is the dilemma he was facing is probably a perfect metaphor for what it is to try to understand rasa theory. On the one hand, you can read all of these books in Sanskrit, in English, and in all of these different languages, analyzing and explaining and postulating about rasa. But that doesn't mean that you can produce art that invokes rasa. On the other hand, you might not even know the first thing about rasa theory, and still, through your dance, move people. And that's the beautiful paradox about art.
0: What exactly is rasa theory, Maya?
2: Rasa theory is a framework by which we can understand rasa. And this comes from the Natyashastra, And it's really a formula. It's essentially rasa is the sum of when you take this thai bhava, which is the main emotion. Then you have the the vibhavas, which are the catalyst, and then you have the anubhavas, which are the responding emotions, as well as the bhavas, which are like the passing moods that you go through. For example, I could be hangry. This is a common state for me. I could be hangry. And so my thai bhava is anger. And the vibhava would be the dog barking and the anubhava is more heightened anger and frustration and that might pass through me with my hands shaking and my me feeling just complete rage or it could be that someone gave me food and I magically transformed to a nicer person let you know and, and either way you've got the state that we're in and then what happens, how we respond, and what happens as a result.
0: It's kind of like that Snickers commercial, right? Where you have that split-screen effect, but I like to think of rasa as also what is going on around you too. See, I think we call that term mise-en-scene in Western Mm -hmm. theater and Western aesthetics, but mise-en-scene is very much a big part of what I understand to be rasa theory in terms of the Indian texts that discuss it, where what is the things around you doing as well in addition to it? And with dance, what is the music doing? What are the lyrics doing? What is the stage setting like? What are you wearing? All of that is part of the establishment of stai bhava. And bhava, of course, referring to what the performer is doing or the presenter is doing. And of course, rasa is arguably what is going on in the audience's experience of what they are witnessing or what they are watching or what they are listening to.
2: I think one of the things that makes Rasa theory a little bit complicated to understand is the Natya Shastra is talking about Natya, it's talking about theater. And what we do today in dance is very different than what was described as dance in the Nati Shastra. Dance was not a standalone art form. It was a part of theater, and it was Nritta. It was abstract dance for the purposes of beauty, for the purposes of joy, as opposed to today we have dance as a distinct style where you have elements of Nritta, which is pure dance, nritya where you're interpreting lyrics as you dance, and Nadia as you're acting. So in one situation, you're talking about the ambiance, the setting, the costumes, you're in character. And in another situation, you're in the same attire, maybe even dancing to the same line being repeated again and again, and you're presenting multiple perspectives for multiple characters, possibly. That brings... Very different tools that we have to use to understand this basic formula: sthayi bhava plus vibhavas plus anubhavas plus vibhichari bhavas equals rasa.
0: And what are some of the texts that we have in Sanskrit literature that talk about rasa theory? In addition to the Natya Shastra,
2: to talk about that, we've got to understand the evolution of the application of rasa, because the Nakti Shastra is really a, a treatise on dramaturgy. It's about theater. And at some point, we see rasa discussed in texts that are talking about Alankara Shastras. And that's really talking about aesthetics, that's talking about poetry, that's talking about literature. So we're moving genres from texts about theater over to texts about literature. And then, of course, from there, we go to standalone texts about music and dance in a later period. In this context, we've got books like Dvanya Loka, Sringara Prakasha, any book that has provided commentary on the Nathichastra, like the Abhinava Bharati. So there's a, definitely a very robust conversation that is happening about the nature of rasa And I think another important thing to note is we start with a very technical description of rasa, but some other texts take it a very philosophical route, right? We're talking about rasa as it relates with spirituality and the purpose of art in that context. We're talking about rasa as it relates to what is the primary rasa, What is the king of all rasas? We're talking about why are we doing this in the case of what is the purpose of a performance when we say rasa is the result? And I think an important thing to call out is for the most part, when it comes to rasa theory, rasa is not within the dancer. It is the bhava in the dancer that is resulting in rasa, in the audience. To take that a step further, there's this concept of a sahradeya, which is the discerning, learned audience who is appropriately responding to rasa. I think one of the interesting things with this is it sort of makes this seem very much as a formula with a very clear right answer, right? You've got a formula of how to produce rasa. You've got the learned audience who's supposed to understand and know and experience rasa based on what they're seeing. And then you've got all these rules. For example, going back to the Nachi Shastra, the drishti vedas are aligned with the rasa. There are points when Bharata is talking about the tempo as it relates to rasa, right? Fast walking could be associated with One rasa versus a slow amble. And you've got the color that's associated, you've got the deity that's associated. And a lot of these texts sort of take that initial framework and either argue with it or extend it for the most part. On the other hand, there's also suggestions that rasa isn't so cut and dry. And that comes with this whole discussion where we're talking about Rasa needs the complete theater, evolving over to saying even a fragment of a phrase in a poem could evoke Rasa.
0: It's interesting because when you're talking about the shifting in performance spaces over the centuries, where we had, you know like a 270-degree audience, for example, or a 180 audience. And then we go to the proscenium stage and all that. So this is also reflective of those changes, too, and the contradictions that are there between texts might arise out of what is in vogue, what is not in vogue at that time. Regional differences, of course, as well, play into this. So in terms of what we think about rasa, most of us dancers have our entryway into rasa theory through the Navarasas. And so we, of course, have, you know, Shingara, Bhibatsam, Hasyam, Viram, Raudram, Bhayanakam, Karuna, and Adputam. And of course, this is kind of the standard eight rasas that are there in the Natya Shastra, but then we have the inclusion of a ninth one, Shantam. So, my question to you, Ameya, is basically about the inclusion of Shantam as a rasa and how did that come about? And when did it come about? Do you know?
2: So, the inclusion of the Shantarasa is part of that debate that is happening about what is the purpose of a production and what are the possible outcomes of a production. And the whole idea is that a production could be a comedy, in which case it's Hasya, it could be a tragedy in which case you would have Karuna. It could be one of those heroic epics, then you have Vira. Or it could be a romance, and it's Shrungara. If you consider what was happening at that time, the Buddhist and the Jain empires were all across the Indian subcontinent. And part of that cultural zeitgeist, I guess, was this whole idea of peace, As a goal, peace as an outcome. That became one of the debates. Is Shantam a legitimate outcome of a production? Is that possible, yes or no? And at some point, the answer became yes. So we have the Nati Shastra, which had the eight Rasas, and then we've got more modern texts which talk about the Navarasas, and we've got the Navarasa Shlokam, right? So
0: this brings us to an interesting juncture because we've been talking a lot about the Sanskritic texts. You know, what were the other language traditions saying? So, for example, in the Tamar tradition, we have an analogous system to rasa theory And this is a system that scholars have been recently doing a lot of unpackaging with. The most commonly cited counterpart to the Natya Shastra in terms of rasa theory, in terms of Tamar tradition, is actually the Tolkapyum. It either predates the Natya Shastra or is contemporaneous with it. It's time for an aside. I'd like to take a moment to talk about the Tamar tradition of literature, especially in reference to the Tolkapian by Tolkapiar. It's an extremely important work and it is the earliest surviving work in the Tamar language that we know of and that has survived to this day. And it is dated variously between the 5th century BCE at its earliest and the 1st century CE at its latest. And the Tolkapiyam is extremely important for understanding the nuances of the Tamil language, the conventions of literature and poetry at the time, and the various ways to classify this literature. And so, at its broadest, Tamil literature can be divided into two categories, Aham and Puram. Aham refers to the matters of the internal world, that includes love, household affairs, and Puram literature refers to the external world that deals with society at large. And there's a lot of poetry and literature here on kings, on war, on governance. In the Tolkapiam's third section, there is a chapter that is dedicated to what are called the Meiparte. And the Meiparte can be defined as manifest emotions that arise out of experiencing poetry. We have Nagaye, or laughter. Aryage, grief or sorrow. Illiberal, disgust. Marutke, wonder. Acham, fear. Perumidam, pride. Vekuli, anger. And finally, Uvagai, or joy. What's really, really striking to me are the interesting parallels and differences between the Tolkapim and the Natya Shastra. Both texts, of course, discuss eight sentiments or emotional states that arise out of experiencing art of some sort. So in the Tolkapiam's case, we have it in response to literature and poetry, but in the Nachish Shastra, in response to drama. What I find even more fascinating are the profound differences between the two texts, especially in their lists of these emotional states. In the Tolkapiam, we have joy. And joy is not present in the Natya Shastra. Instead, we have Shringara. So instead of classifying romantic love as a Meiparte, like the Shringara Rasa is classified in the Natya Shastra, romantic love is given such a preeminent position in Tamil tradition that there are whole genres of poetry and literature just devoted to depicting the nuances of love between the hero and the heroine. And there are many, many examples of such depictions in Sangam poetry of that era. In Tholkapyam, they talk about eight kinds of manifest emotions. Laughter, grief, disgust, wonder, fear, pride, anger, and joy. Which I find very interesting because in the Natya Shastra we have Karuna or compassion, but there is no grief. It makes me wonder about the texts that have also added different rasas that are not in the original eight to the Natya Shastra.
1: Did it have one for
2: Shrungara?
0: No, that's another thing.
2: So that's the counterpart for joy. Instead of love, it says joy, and instead of saying compassion, it's saying grief.
0: And I think that, you know, when it comes to the various lists that we have of the rasas, they differ based on, you know, the text itself. So we have some texts that say 8, some say 9, some say 12, some say 14. It's a very it's very variable and it just kind of signifies that this is a scenario or this is a theorem that is still not figured out completely. It's still in debate. It's still in the in the process of trying to crystallize into, you know, a law almost, like the scientific equivalent.
2: Yeah, and I think if we want to take it to very recent times, we can look at the movie Inside Out, there you've got five.
0: Yeah, which I find very interesting, but they're all primordial emotions. It's like fear, disgust, joy, sorrow, and what was the fifth one? Anger. Anger. Because they're all like very visceral emotions, right? And the mixture of those five lead to some very age-appropriate responses to things. Because we're talking about a child's experience of emotion, right? And controlling emotions in that movie, right? Yes. So it's very visceral. So it it makes sense that there is five. And I think that, you know, in that scenario.
2: And I think there's a couple of layers I want to peel apart with you, Gideon. The first is when we talk about Inside Out, it was specifically... That's not acting. That's not dance. That is a child interacting with the real world around her as she experiences major life changes. And also, it is a situation where memory comes into play, her lived experience as it interacts with her emotional state. How do you see that interacting with when we're talking about performance
0: I think in terms of performance, this is where a lot of people also argue about art as art and art as life. You have this scenario where you have art as life, and then you have art for art's sake, which is like an aestheticized object. And then it has all the conventions that make it as such. Then you have art as life or art reflective of life, where it's like a community builds something together and it's called art or, you know, something like that, where it's more interactive with life experience. So where does Indian classical dance lie in the spectrum? Because it can't be an absolute art for art's sake and art for life's sake, because Indian classical dance is also in that spectrum where it incorporates a lot of life experience And without life experience, there's no way to create convincing bhavam in many ways. Like you can teach how to create archetypes, but then to give it the breath and the life that it needs to manifest on stage as part of the person's self requires also that life experience. Some people will argue with me about this very topic, but personally, you know, that's where you get memory, you get cultural. Memory, collective memory, which is a huge part about the process of abinea, because we draw upon this memory bank of similes, metaphors, ideas, things that are in literature, things that we've encountered in our real life when we start to embody characters in our dance pieces. And so we're kind of in this weird gray area of art as life because we draw upon life experience, but at the same time we aestheticize it and we don't necessarily put our full authentic voice, because we also deal with texts that are culturally contextual. So we bring to life a lot of archetypes that are there in Indian literature and in Indian art that have been there for centuries, that have transformed over centuries. But we also have to negotiate it with our experience of those archetypes and our own life experiences in terms of bringing the emotional and psychological center and core of a character to life.
2: And I think one of the challenges that many of us who are creating navigate is what is acceptable to bring into our dance, right? What part of our life experience is acceptable fodder? What kind of gestures that we today understand in our day-to-day lives can we bring into our dance without it being too unorthodox? What part of our life experiences, what part of our the themes we're exploring in our regular life fit into dance? The other thing I wanted to ask you about Kiran is kind of going into this idea of the outcome. Obviously with rasa, the outcome of the dance or the performance is the rasa, hopefully the desired one. You don't want them laughing for a tragedy, right? Um, But another very strong strain of conversation we have in Indian classical dance is this concept of the philosophical goal of our art. And that ties into these different schools of thought as far as philosophy. So do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. So I think we can largely focus the conversation in a couple of ways. So as we all know, Hinduism is pluralistic in thought. And so at one point, there were as many as 64 recognized schools of thought in ancient India and in the subcontinent at large. You can roughly divide those in very different ways. It's controversial. But for the sake of simplicity, imagine that you have a cluster of schools that hold the Vedas as supreme. And then you have the schools that don't hold the Veda as a supreme, and they talk about similar phenomenon. And then you have, of course, the schools that are within that broad division. You have schools of thought that are atheistic and schools of thought that are theistic. And of course, as history goes on, in response to the development of Buddhism, Jainism, and other splintering religious traditions that were in response to Hinduism and and questioned Hinduism, you have this need for Hinduism and for the rulers who are practicing Hinduism at the time to consolidate power. And this is largely seen in the medieval period of India, where there's a need to consolidate Hindu thought as a way to also assert Hindu dominance over Buddhism and Jainism, which were widely rampant prior to the Bhakti movement, especially in southern India. As a result, certain traditions started to become superseding over others. This is where the debate about rasa becomes very, very important because is Indian art religious and liturgical by nature, or does it exist as a continuum? Because right now in the classical dance world, a lot of the idea is centered around the idea of sacredness and about liturgy and about transmission of mythology, and cultural ethos. But as Indian art always existed in that realm, and this is where we can see in terms of the differences of thought in Dassa theory aligning very closely with the conversations about philosophy and ultimately the purpose of man or human for that matter.
2: And I think that's an important discussion to have because Oftentimes, as performers, we do so much self censorship and self policing with the language of dance because we're not comfortable talking about certain topics, saying, Well, if this is a divine dance form, can I use this to discuss that? And I think we can look at the fact that there have been all of these pluralistic traditions. And there has been this vociferous debate across centuries in text that we can trace. And likewise, there are all of these artistic traditions that may not have survived to today for a host of different reasons, but we know that they existed. Whether they were outside of Hindu theistic thought, whether they were outside of Hindu practice.
0: That's sort of like what we get with rasa sometimes, where we have now the Navaras, which has been like fossilized into law for Indian dance. But then when you go and just peel away the layers of history and text, we see it's a it's a very rich debate that has happened across centuries, and it still happens to this day. And this leads us to basically what is it that we learn today, Amea? <laughs>
1: The
2: pluralisticness with the Rasa theory, I am a little bit more familiar with the narrative as far as the Sanskritic traditions with the development of Rasa, but it was very enlightening to know that that conversation was happening in the Tamil literature and not necessarily coming to the same conclusions.
0: And we also don't know if the Thamar tradition and the Sanskrit traditions really interacted with each other. They're, we don't know. And so there's a debate about this. How much did Sanskrit influence Thamar and how much did Thamar influence Sanskrit in terms of aesthetics and in terms of literature? These are questions that are continued to be debated among scholars.
2: I would argue that it comes back to. At the end of the day, text is documentation. It is not setting the law. It's documenting what is happening. What did you learn, Kiddern
0: I learned from you about the influence of Buddhist and Jain scholars into the development of rasa theory, especially with the inclusion of Shantam as a rasa in later texts, which I found very interesting because I never really thought about the influence of other religions into, you know, Indian aesthetics, Rasa theory at large. I mean, I understand it from a repertoire perspective, but in terms of actual grammar and text, I had never really thought about that part of history as well, which I think was really illuminating. The other thing that I also learned besides not knowing your recipe of of rasam,
1: You're
2: never going to get it.
0: Please. No. (laughs) Like, I kid, but basically, what I had really learned from your discussion about the puzzle that is rasa theory is that you can't think of it exclusively in one domain. You can't think of it as exclusively dance, exclusively theater, exclusively literature, or exclusively philosophy. Like your rasam recipe, which has many components, Rasa is also an amalgamation of so many different things coming together. But I think the one thing that we can say about the formula, and I think what we agree upon is that Rasa is something that is savored. So it has to be by the taster, not the creator necessarily. So the the one who is savoring the experience experiences Rasa, but the creator is the one that creates the ambiance to be able to have the taste experience to begin with. And I know that certain texts kind of say the opposite, but I think for most of us practitioners now, we view it where the audience is Rasa and the creator, the artist is Bhavam, for lack of a more sophisticated way of saying this. So this brings us to our final call to action as we close part one of our discussion of Rasa. So our call to action for today is, as we had mentioned, we haven't solved the riddle, the enigma of Rasa. So what changes would you make to the Navarasa list that we have that is currently in practice? If there are any changes, what would they be? Please share your thoughts on our social media. Our handle on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is Dance, And you can also visit our website at offthebeat.dance. Stay tuned for part two coming next week. Today's episode would not have been possible without the incredible support and encouragement of our amazing listeners and the following people. Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo, Catwalk Institute for Kiran studio space, Sharada Jammi for Ameya's studio space, Drs. V. Arasu, Lakshmi Ramaswamy, S. Raguraman, and V. Murugan for their critical insights into Tolkappiyam and the contributions of Tamil literature to Indian dance and aesthetics, Drs. Yashoda Thakur, and Anupama Kailash for their incisive and comprehensive review of the nuances of Rasa theory and its evolution through Sanskrit literature. And finally, a very, very special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. Like what you heard? Remember to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast so that we can continue to bring you new episodes of Off the Beat every Thursday. We'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell all your friends about us. You can follow us at Off The Beat Dance on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or visit us at OffTheBeat.dance. Stay tuned for part two of Rasa and Rasam out on September 23rd.